and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And if you're a new listener, we talk all about wildlife gardening. And if you are an existing listener, then I hope we you haven't missed... We still talk about wildlife gardening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I hope you've not missed us too much because we've been away on our holidays. We have. There's always a reason for our episodes to be late, in inverted commas. And I put them in inverted commas because we, we're trying to do it fortnightly, but life has sometimes got in it a little... It will be life. fortnightly it, from now. On average, I think it's going to average out fortnightly. That's No the more holidays now till yeah. Christmas, do we? For those lovely people that have been asking where we are... Uh, uh, yeah, we were in Dorset. We were in Dorset, we and it was a really lovely. We week. were chasing moths around the toilets on a campsite. We do know how to holiday. It's <laughs> we true. Have to live. <laughs> yeah, we don't want. The, we don't actually want this to turn into a moth podcast. We do end up talking quite a lot about them, but campsite toilet blocks are some of the best places to spot moths it turns out yeah absolutely amazing and i actually put a post up on moth uk of the the massive hall that we found at half 11 one night uh we were busy trying to rescue them identify and rescue them and some woman on moth uk said i think i'm gonna get rid of my moth trap and put up a, an outdoor toilet block instead <laughs> Love that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Look, we'll come on to the rest of the sightings in just a minute. But um, other things we've got coming up in this episode, we've got the first of two parts of our interview with Helen Bostock, who is the sort of wildlife chief from the RHS, from the Royal Horticultural Society. So Ellie went down to, well, actually, we both went down to Wisley about a month ago, wasn't it? Yep. And recorded an interview with her. So we've got the first part of that. And then our native plant of the week this time round is oregano. Yeah. The herb, which nice. actually turns out to be a native plant. So we get to talk about food and plants yes. and wildlife. I mean, what three better things are there in the world? <laughs> I don't think there are many, apart from beer. moths. Oh, oh, crap, beer. Yeah, but beer comes from plants, so... True. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> should, we, should we tell people what we've actually seen? Yes, yes, sightings. Just do the moss first of all. Go okay. on, give the proper oh, list. It, it was just so good. So, as I said, half 11 at night, picture two very excited people taking pictures in a very small toilet block on a campsite. Thankfully, no one came in while we were doing this because I think it would have been a difficult thing to explain. But we, well, the, the best one, uh, am I allowed to have favourites? Yeah, yeah you can have favourites. My favourite, um, I've wanted to see one of these for blimmin' ages, but we saw a peach blossom and... I think there was a lot of squealing with delight when we actually realised that's what we were looking at. It is a charming moth. A very handsome moth with effectively peach blossom coloured sort of splodges all over its wing. It's very, very pretty. And actually that one feeds on brambles in late summer, which is very interesting. We did bramble as our native plant of the week, so that's another reason to to plant. Yeah, and this um, campsite all the hedging around it was was yeah. full of bramble which would make sense as well another beauty we saw was a burnished brass and that really genuinely is shiny like it's insane how it looks like brass and it flies past you and it looks like a piece of sort of tin foil or why well, say brass but brass foil brass foil if you're really posh <laughs> <laughs> if you've got money to burn brass foil <laughs> Only the best, Ben. Um, no, very, very beautiful one. And another, a funny one. This is a moth after my own heart. Snout. Because it's got a big nose. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, not me. Well, I'd just like to set you up for these things. <laughs> <laughs> Take one for the team. It really does have a big schnoz right out the front, doesn't it? It's a great name. Perfect. I don't think it's actually a nose. I don't know what it is. Oh, yeah, no, I haven't it's actually It's just a, like a pointy head. That's, but there yeah. must be some reason for it. I think it's its nose. Come on. 
Um, and then one final moth, I promise, this is the last of it, uh, the pale egger, which is pale and furry and it has actual furry trousers yeah furry legs really 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 beautiful um just chilling out on the on the toilet block wall and actually on that one the adults don't feed their only reason for being is to mate so something so beautiful doesn't it just doesn't eat it does all it's eating as a caterpillar and then it just uh has a good time as a an adult yeah (laughs) just as the mating bit yeah mad yeah nice that's an interesting one because we we actually went and rescued some of these moths and before we haven't really known whether we should rescue things or not because sometimes things don't need rescuing um but after doing our moth episode we thought maybe some of these because they were there during the day weren't they we yeah, saw them during the day moved at all. and then we went at night and they hadn't moved and a lot of the ones that we didn't rescue the following day they were still there as well so they'd not gone out and eaten anything or mated or done any mating yeah. yeah so we think probably what was happening was sometimes as we described last in the last episode about moths sometimes if it's daytime and they're sheltering away somewhere and then lights come on before it's night then they just that switch doesn't happen they don't think night time has come and they just stay inactive and i think that's what we were seeing so we went and collected them all up and uh shoved them yeah. in a bush didn't we yep Lots of questions, Gently. lots of Gently. raised eyebrows. Yeah. During we, I did it on, in another toilet block as well. I don't think you were there on on a beach that we visited, and some woman did actually walk in on me picking or chasing moths around this tiny <laughs> cubicle, and I did explain it, and she still looked nonplussed <laughs> as to what I was doing, and then slowly backed away. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was that person. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, non moth sightings though. Yes, yes. Move away from the moths. That was most of what we saw when we were on holiday, but we. The, no. week, the week before we went on holiday. I was going to say about the wheat here. Oh, yeah. Birds. Last bird alert, day. Bird alert. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, we had to actually get this identified. And uh, Neil from UK Wildlife Podcast helped help me out on this one because I did not know what it was. But it was a wheat here. And I presume, because it was right on the south coast on a, it on a cliff. on the edge of the sea. I think it? it was getting ready to migrate. Yeah, definitely. I think that was its last pit stop. Amazing. Yeah, it was gorgeous. We neither of us have seen one before, have we? No. And it was getting dark, so we didn't, we didn't, we couldn't recognise it. That's why we needed to get it ID'd later because it was a bit down the path and it was getting dark in the gloaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But lovely, really nice. Yeah, but yeah. Before we went on holiday, we did have a really good sparrow hawk encounter, and this was in one of the gardens that we look after, or rather, we were. We just finished the job, hadn't we? Yeah, we're having a chat. Packing up the van, yeah, getting ready to go. And there's a hedge on the opposite side of the road. This is just a normal suburban street, um, you know, in in a really built up area of Nottingham. And all of a sudden there was loads of commotion coming from the the hedge opposite where we knew there were... All hell broke loose, basically. It's like (laughs) squawking galore. Well, there was loads of... We've noticed before loads of the sparrows in there, the spadgers. But then, yeah, it just went, all went nuts, and then it went quiet, and then a sparrowhawk just flew right out of the hedge, right at us, did a sudden turn, screeched round, and then flew off over a house. Yeah, I was about to say, ejaculated from the hedge. I don't know if that's (laughs) appropriate, but it really did just kind of shoot out the hedge, and yeah, then it was off, wasn't it? I don't think it had one of the sparrows. No, it didn't have anything. get away. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, that was really good, that yeah, spot. Yeah. yeah. And we've seen quite a few um, hornet mimic hoverflies as well. That's yeah. the other good spot we had before we went on holiday. And these are the largest hoverfly in the UK. Yeah. That's They're the about... Volucella zonaria. 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 
Yeah, I never really know when no, it's Latin. No. Yeah, um, but they what are they about two centimeters long, huge, and they look vaguely like a hornet. Um, so you could easily mistake them actually. And we'd seen one a couple of years ago. We had one hanging out on some washing that we had out yeah, the back of yeah. our house, and I did it then. But you, what we've noticed with hoverflies is that you tend to get lots of the same species all at the same time. They seem to go in different stages throughout mm. the year. And I think that's true of butterflies. And, oh, yeah, lots of different things. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just loads of these hornet mimic hoverflies knocking about, which was really lovely to see. And, I mean, I don't know how far north they've got, but it's also interesting because they used to only be rare migrant visitors in, like, the 1940s. And increasingly, they've their, their extent has really increased over the UK. So now you find them further and further north. Um, and they actually live inside wasps' nests, so they have to be big and scary looking. Oh, that's the that's they lay their eggs inside wasps' nests. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, they yeah, lay their yeah. eggs. So yeah, yeah they, and the these... larvae just knock about there until they turn yeah. into adults, don't they? Really, really brave and fascinating life cycle. Fascinating. Yeah. That reminds me, I, I think I have shown you this. There is an amazing website called I think it's just called wasplove.com. Oh, you. Yeah, you showed me. I did You're show obsessed you. with yeah. it. You so didn't I put talk this on, to me for three days. <laughs> I put this on Twitter. <laughs> it's a, basically an online video game where you are a wasp and you have to construct... It's a social wasp colony and you have to construct this colony um, and get the next generation of queens out before the winter comes. It's It's timed over the season. And... The really interesting thing is sometimes hoverflies come in and they parasitise the wasp's nest and then mm. you have to start again. <laughs> and, and that happens a lot, which oh, is why I spent three days obsessively trying to get a good score. I wish so you, I wish you brought about, it back up. I imagine this is <laughs> going to be re-resurrected. Uh, I think basically scores 25 to 50 all say Ben on them. Because <laughs> I couldn't get any better than that, but I played it a lot of times. <laughs> But on the wildlife gardening front with hoverflies, I think we should do a whole episode on attracting them into your garden because they are they, they have quite specific needs in terms of flower shape. Well, they're similar to flies, aren't they? Because yeah. they dab the nectar. Yeah, exactly. And they really like um, flat flowers. Yeah. And they particularly like things like, um, oh, what was I going to say? Astrantia. Yeah, oh, yeah they do. stuff like that with with but sort of humble flower heads. I was also going to say our ivy uh, wall a tree. I don't know what you call it at the end of the garden. I think it's actually a borrowed plant. I think don't know if it's actually oh, it's planted in door. our garden, but it is flowering. And this is what makes ivy such a great plant because it is in flower when loads of other things aren't. And it, ours is absolutely alive with flying things. Humming. So I had a I stopped and watched and loads and loads of different types of hoverfly all over it as well as all the wasps and all the um green bottles as well just loads of different yeah, types and of flies. Yeah, you flying. get the ivy bee at this time of year as well. Yeah, which I'll be looking out for. Yeah. Yeah, it's a late emerger, isn't it? Yeah, but they go nut yeah, hoverflies. Love ivy. Yeah, get some ivy in your gardens, guys. Yeah, and the final sighting, well this is a reverse sighting. Oh yeah. That's what we're calling it because we were spotted <laughs> and we're going to say hello to Kian out there who spotted us on a train. We were coming back from holiday and we were just getting off. Uh, where were we? Cheltenham, Cheltenham or somewhere yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, we were changing trains. So we were dashing off. But then we heard a voice behind us sort of saying, are you hello, are you Ellie and Ben? And well, yeah, apparently he'd never seen us, had he? he no. Hadn't even seen a photo of us, but just recognised us by our voices. He recognised us by our voices, but ever since I've been worried what it was we were saying on the train. <laughs> <Just now. laughs> 
Yeah, no, it was really, it was nice. I, I was, we were just as excited <laughs> as him, yeah. I think. But yes, hello, Kian from Durham University. Yeah, and biology student. Yep, really nice to meet you. Sorry, we didn't have longer to have a chat. Yeah, wish we did. Thanks but, for listening. Yeah, if anybody else out there does happen to recognise us, please just do a, come up and say hello, because we are off to Chelsea on Saturday. So if anybody, any budding wildlife gardeners out there see us when we're knocking about, We'll yeah. be in the floral marquee or at the bar. Perfect. Actually, we won't be at the bar because we won't be able to avoid the prices. Uh, we'll be on a patch of grass drinking, drinking our cans. Own cans. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Classy. Right, on that note, should we do some news? Yeah, on to the news. So I'm taking the news this week and my news is an event that you should all get in your diaries and that is on Tuesday, September the 28th and it is an online talk by the Tree Council on growing your own trees from seeds that you've gone out and collected, which is a really great topic to to get stuck into it is actually we've done it before going going out collecting acorns beech masts various things and just planting them up and then seeing what comes up but this talk is all about how you can make the most of that and I always think um, it's a really lovely thing to do with uh, like if you've got a family with kids and we've actually got a customer that's also done that with his kids and they've got effectively an oak nursery yeah. in their garden <laughs> yet to see where they're going to plant them it's a really fun thing to do with kids especially if you go out and collect things like dogwood or the gelderosa that we talked about last time oh, yeah, anything with things. a fleshy fruit because you want to get that flesh off so it's mm. just really good to just sort of get your hands in and squelch all of that that juice off and uh yeah but there's there's slightly different techniques you want to use for the larger and smaller seeded uh, trees and and shrubs so yeah if you want to know the the full details of how to do that this talk sounds really really good i don't know the time so we'll put a link to it in the show notes and you can look that up yourselves but yeah the, the speaker um is john stokes and that is the tree council's director of trees science and research and he's also the author of the good seed guide so he really knows his stuff and he's going to be exploring the incredible diversity of tree seeds that are on your doorstep and as i said how you actually collect them and grow them on and if you've got any questions as well, he is going to be answering those questions. So that, yeah, go along. Yeah, great. <laughs> I really hope that they record that and put it on YouTube afterwards. Mm. Yeah. The second bit of news is, well, it involves us actually, um, because there's, if you don't have enough of us through this podcast <laughs> and through our new YouTube channel, go on oh. YouTube. We've got our first proper video up. Uh, recorded on our new allotment uh so you can check that out on youtube we are the wild gdn which is the same as our twitter handle but if that isn't enough for you then we've actually <laughs> been guests ourselves on a couple of other podcasts really really good podcasts that we listen yeah. to regularly I was say, this is more of a plug for those other podcasts yeah, yeah, rather than just really plugging good. us because yeah. you guys you guys are already listening so <laughs> yeah but if you do want to listen to those we were on into the wild with ryan dalton and he's got a sort of a co-host for a, a section of his podcast he does called Into the Foliage, which is all about plants and uh, gardening and growing. 
Um, so we were a guest on there talking all about organic gardening yep. generally. What it is, how to do it a little bit and why we do it as well. Yeah. And yeah, I really loved, well, we, we sort of know Ryan already now, but I loved meeting Jan, the co-host. She's so, so funny and just a brilliant woman and has been doing all sorts of growing. I'd love to see her allotment actually. Yeah, her allotment great. sounds great. Yeah. And the second one we are on is the Bearded Tits podcast, which is produced by Jack Perks, who's a videographer for loads of the TV shows that you've seen, uh, Spring Watch and Country File, lots of other stuff as well. He had us on to talk about our five favourite plants for wildlife. That was a big ask, Jack, if you're listening. Yeah. I don't know it, if he is, but... <laughs> it was tricky, but oh. it's good to have a list because now we can just reel that off, can't well, we? Well, it gave so. us another excuse to talk about plants in the van between jobs, so... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> if you do want to know our top five plants for wildlife, then go ahead and check out the Bearded Tits podcast. Yeah, and excuse my inability to pronounce Lanicera periclinemon. Meanum. Oh, I cannot do it. (laughs) (laughs) On to the first part of our interview with Helen Bostock from the Royal Horticultural Society. We went down to RHS Wisley, which is their big garden down in Surrey. And the RHS, the Royal Horticultural Society, for anybody who doesn't know, they do loads and loads of work now on wildlife gardening. And Helen Bostock is one of the lead authors on lots of the studies that they've been putting out. Fascinating woman, had a lovely tour of that garden. So enjoy the interview. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for meeting us at Wizzy. Well, you're most welcome. I'm so pleased that you managed to get over to the Wildlife Garden. I know. We did mess up our last visit here and got very distracted. Well, as you know, this wasn't open, was it? Because this is, this is actually new, the hilltop development. Yeah, it's only opened in June, which... Um, well, there's been a big build-up. Obviously, the garden didn't materialise overnight. It's been sort of in the making for quite a few months, possibly even a year. Mm. It was the first of the um, three brand new gardens around Hilltop yep. uh, building um, to, to get started. So yep. it's, it's, in a way, it's the one that's sort of starting to show a little bit of maturity. Definitely. Like I, was, I was just seeing um, a dragonfly larvae wow. in, in the ponds that's here. That's amazing. So I, yeah, I, I'm not sure whether that would have been from this year or the last year, but that that's starting to show a little bit of. If it was a bit chunky, then I would say last year. Chunky. So, because yeah. I know you've got lots of dragonflies here, and that's partly the reason why we missed sort of the rose garden things because we got so distracted by the insects. So they must—they're obviously here already, and they just wanted to colonise the new pond that you've put in for them. Yeah, Brilliant. well, I think in this garden, the the, the pond areas are really. really strong it's not just a little add-on you know tucked away the whole design has sort of really been built around these great big two large pond areas Mm. um that have 
have been totally sort of constructed with wildlife in mind. So they've yeah. got these lovely different sort of levels um, in them, great sort of uh, areas of uh, shallow mm. slopes going up to, to the very edge of the pond, so access for yep. wildlife getting in and out isn't going to be a problem at yeah. all. So, I mean, we do have some, some lovely water features at Weasley, but when they were put together you know when they were built it wasn't really with with wildlife at the fore so that I think is what makes this this garden really special and And, really different and you get obviously very excited about wildlife what is it you do in the RHS what's your job title (laughs) yeah you you, you've found me out there (laughs) yeah it is a bit of a passion um so technically my title is senior horticultural advisor um I sort of I sort of do a bit of everything yeah um uh, they allow me quite free reign to, to do stuff around anything that encourages garden biodiversity, yeah. to um, inform members and inform gardeners about that, um, to do research about it, which, you know, when you're at the cutting edge of finding out, uh, because there's a lot we don't know That's about so true. wildlife and gardens. You know, yeah. it's, it's not like, you know, sort of species in nature reserves that have probably had some pretty good studies done on them over the decades. Um, gardens just have been really sort of understudied and valued until sort of recent decades Um, so the amount of things we don't know far outweigh what we do know but as we start to learn things then we can start to you know really put that into practice and I think that's really kind of what this garden is about it's starting to build on some of the knowledge that we're developing and also to show garden visitors that you can have a really beautiful, attractive, well-designed garden that's good for wildlife and good for you. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be a sort of compromise. Yeah, um, obviously we are massive advocates of that as well. <laughs> and yeah, I think I, it's really difficult to get across the beauty of a place on a podcast, but this is already really beautiful, even in, in its infancy. So yes, I think just having the sound of insects and birds around you is is part of the beauty. Imagine a silent garden just wouldn't I be know. the same, would I it? Know. As- I mean, I'm... I'm- extra lucky because my new office space is literally just up over there I'm pointing at it uh, in in this beautiful sort of wood cloud building but my office is on the side of um, the garden which looks down over over the wildlife garden so I get like this panorama it's actually very hard to daily work up there yeah I was going to say I'd be so distracted I'd just be like oh what's that pond skater doing oh this is interesting it's bad enough being a gardener actually we have to really rein in they're, they're just taking photos of wildlife in people's gardens and actually get some weeding done. Yeah, no. it's, it's a good distraction though, isn't it? Oh, it's lovely. I feel very, very lucky being surrounded by it. Yes. No, that's really, really good. And do you think, I mean, with your job and, and your interest in wildlife and the fact that you work at the RHS and then the implementation of this new beautiful wildlife garden, do you think that the RHS is is shifting towards more that way of thinking over time? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, what I've been in the advisory team for about 20 years. Um, and even just during that time, um, I've seen such a sort of increase, n- not anything sort of seismic, but really gradual increase in interest amongst uh, gardeners and our members about wildlife. And a, a corresponding commitment, I think, from the RHS in 
yeah, providing mm. information and investigating. Um, so, you know, like on our on our website now, there's a whole sort of hub um, dedicated to to wildlife gardening, um, and I just get excited about oh what can I put there what can I write new you know so I did something on wildlife gardening and health and well-being or wildlife gardening and climate change or 101 or something you know so so we you know I'm really well supported uh, from that side I think the RHS has jumped in sort of two feet um, into that arena because there's just more and more evidence suggesting that wildlife is so important um, for our own um, you know sort of well-being of as, as well as important in its own right so so yeah and like the garden magazine that goes to members um, for a while now we've had an entire page dedicated to to wildlife so that shows you know just how much interest there is from from readers and yeah this garden I think does say it all yeah uh, just say look this isn't just about you lot doing something out there this is you know we want to showcase it here as well yeah. um, and still show, you know, the best in gardening. This is a, an unfair curveball question on Go the back on. of that. <laughs> Do you think that eventually the, the term wildlife gardening will just be dropped? You know, the wildlife will be dropped Ooh. and it will just become yeah. how we garden? Because I, I feel like, for me, that's how it's going. I mean, you know, even something like organic gardening was really on the fringe, mm. what, 20 years ago? Um, I think, yeah, what... I'd like to think that's the way we could end up, that actually we can just talk about gardening and know that inherently what you're doing is good for wildlife. And to some degree, that that is what the situation is anyway. You don't have to label yourself a wildlife gardener. No. If you are planting, growing things, creating a green space, creating structure, creating habitat, you you're going to have things in living in there and sharing your space whether you like it or not yeah. in some ways. Yeah. But I, I think there's... There's going to be obviously attitudes around um, how you enhance that. You know, what can you do? Can you plant something that's better than something else? Can you manage those plants differently that that favours certain species? Or so, I think as knowledge starts to sort of trickle outwards and become commonplace, and also as maybe some of the things that we know are good for wildlife become. Um, yeah, something that you see your neighbour doing or, you know, that you see in a public area. And it, again, that, that almost normalises it in a good way, you know, that that, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I could do that in my garden. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, styles change. Um, but, yeah, it'd be nice to think that all gardening would be, would be, it would be my dream. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> Fab, yes. And in, as part of your, you know, your long career with the RHS, you've been mm. quite heavily involved with both the Plants for Pollinators and also the Plants mm. for Bugs project, which, as you just said, your passion would suggest that <laughs> it was an obvious uh, choice for you to get involved with those things. Can yeah. you tell us a bit about both? <laughs> I know they're quite big projects, so that's quite yeah, a big so, so they they complement each other, but they're slightly separate things, which can be a bit confusing. So Plants for Pollinators, so that was a... A list of plants um, that was launched by the RHS in 2011 um, and really it was to highlight to gardeners plants that we think go above and beyond their duty for helping pollinating insects so particularly bees but it, it can be other other things like hoverflies and so on so they'd need to have some sort of accessible um, pollen and nectar we'd need to sort of know that they were 
going to be good doers, as it were, but also good garden plants. Um, so that was that was compiled um, by the then principal entomologist, a really well-recognised chap called Andrew Halstead, who was also a very keen beekeeper himself. Oh, so, nice. you know, he, he had his own interest. And so he used all the sort of sources, published sources at the time, um, that suggested plants which were good in UK gardens, oh, particularly for bees. Yes. But he yeah. also led, on top of that, his own personal experience yeah. from, you know, sort of watching things from a beekeeper's point of view as well. Um, and that's where the list originally came right. from. Um, yes. But then over time, we've we've sort of really taken them to heart within the science team mm. here at the RHS. Um, and so any data um, that we sort of glean uh, that's coming out of projects, and there's so many now. I mean, you, yeah. you know, I think you probably, um, do, you, do you speak with Nick too? Yeah, yeah one of yeah, our PhD yeah. students. Yeah. So, you know, every year there's new new material coming out, new, new studies, new data, and we layer all that into the process. So those lists do get reviewed now yeah. and again, and... Um, They've stood the test of time surprisingly well, I think, but they can always be improved um, as new plants come in as well, you know, so it's going to be a sort of uh, evolving list. Um, Probably having things added to it rather than sort of reviewing and taking things off. Yeah, it would be rare, I think, for us to take things off. But if something supersedes, like with the Award of Garden Merit, which is what the RHS trials are all about, you know. So I think, you know, it it needs to stay um, current. Mm. It's supposed to be an aid. If you're going to a garden centre or whatever or buying online, you can perhaps look at our downloadable list. And we've got a few on there. So there's a garden plant list, which is done by season there's a wildflower list which is sort of done by Yay. habitat which is great yeah, <laughs> yeah if you've got like a wet spot that you want to make more of a wildflower area um and yeah it's um it it's sort of can be used in in different ways but it, it, it's supposed to be an aid um and i would always extol the uh, sort of virtues of observing plants in yes. in a natural garden because yes. what might work in my garden yeah. Um, you know might not work in yours because conditions are different climates different you know so so yeah it's it's a good starting point but don't let it be the end all um the plants books project yeah Mm. now that oh i kind of somehow snuck into that team (laughs) by accident don't tell anyone but my i'm not a real scientist (laughs) or a backdoor scientist those are the best yes so i yeah my my background is well i did a history degree yeah and then i went on to do horticulture at saskin bryan uh, college in in york and just fell in love with the whole gardening experience so when i came to the rhs i was really interested in sort of helping other people learning sort of trying to absorb everything um but yeah they because i showed an interest in the wildlife gardening side when the wildlife gardening forum uh, which uh, you know well yeah um their research working group really identified some areas of gaps in knowledge and one of those was the the relative merits of native and non-native garden plants because that was always a bit of a a sort of controversial topic you know do garden plants bring anything yeah big question yeah um oh you know what we're doing in gardens what what we're planting in there is that you know just sort of a bit uh, a bit rubbish for wildlife or you know is it playing a different role what's happening so so that came really out of their inspiration um 
and the RHS was like well this is our area we we really love that idea you know plants and and the role of plants so so fortunately the RHS had enough you know sort of uh, umph behind them to yeah. take on that as a long-term research project we did four four years of field trial yeah. sampling in two two different areas at Wisley, one down in the field research facility in the village and one one actually in the gardens. Um, and there were 36 plots uh, altogether. A third planted up with um, British native plants, another third with northern hemisphere plants, excluding British natives, and the remaining with southern hemisphere plants. So it, yeah. it kind of gave that sort of range of plant communities. Now, we didn't specifically pick any plants for inclusion in that study because we knew they were good for wildlife it was more about their geographical origin because we were trying to test that sort of community effect of you know is the nativeness or non-nativeness of a plant you know affecting things and then yeah the study I mean we're goodness uh, I'm trying to remember how just how many thousands of uh, invertebrates got sampled you know as as part of that study but um, we did everything from sort of ground up uh, you know sort of things that were active like brown beetles and ants and things up through the foliage layer you know things munching on 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 the leaves up to the pollinators of course we we Mm. said we've done an episode on uh, native versus non-native but oh. a lot of the evidence came from the plants of bike okay. so yes great, great, <laughs> really great. That. yes of course it's like oh, well I think Ben described it as seminal because I think it is yes. you know yeah it really been... hadn't been done no, certainly no. not in that in that systematic way exactly um, and that was what was missing um but did you choose the plants you said it was geographical but mm. i mean it is just a fact that when you go to a garden center you tend to get the same sort of plants and you, you often see similar things in people's gardens because of what's available so yeah. i guess you chose plants based on their sort of well, popularity if you like or not necessarily i mean we try not to include anything really obscure yeah. that wouldn't be seen in yeah. gardens but it, it was more about getting that um, native northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere mix. So, for example, one of the shrubby plants we had was native box. So that would be the British native plant. Another plant which has a very similar structure and function in the garden is Christmas box or sweet box, sarcococca. So that was our northern hemisphere one. And then in the southern hemisphere, and I'm trying to think which one we went for, I think it was osmanthus, sorry, osothamnus, I should say, um, didn't really have an equivalent um, botanical partner, but takes the same function in a garden so so it was those sorts of things that we were looking for we also wanted things that were going to be able to survive for four years and not need replacing all the time and things that were hardy which was actually a little bit more tricky for the the exotic one um so yeah um it it I think it was quite representative. When people walked around, they didn't go, oh, this is a weird trial. They just thought, oh, these are pretty beds. They recognised them as garden beds because we laid each one out in the same design. So there was a a climber in the back left corner and a couple of shrubs here and some ferns or grasses there. So it it looked like little garden plots. So Um, you can easily replicate it in in your own garden if you you wanted to. If you wanted to. (laughs) I mean, you you asked me about um, entomologists, but it, it, well, the, the, the main lead entomologist and author of our, the papers is Dr Andrew Salisbury, who's, yes. who's based here as well. Fantastic, you know, kind of dedication that he put to it. Um, but we did also have these brilliant volunteers who would do a lot of the, the, the physical, you know, sort of collecting of the data. Um, and, of course, it all takes a lot of time 
back, you know, sort of pouring through. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And putting things in the freezer and taking them out and, you know, poking around with the pooter, you know. (laughs) There's all that fun bit. So um, it it was an impressive body of data, but that meant that the findings from it, we could be more confident about, you know, what they were telling us. So so if we look at the garden around us that Mm. we're in, um, quite a few of those findings have been... um, brought into play right. with the design of this gun so wow. yeah. so you probably although yeah, yeah i wouldn't expect you to know all of the plants in here but there's a really <laughs> rich me. mix of both yeah. native and non-native yeah. plants because we found that non-natives do have a role to play but you do need a good mainstay of natives to to, to get the best balance um there's also a really long season of flowering interest. I know obviously we're just coming towards the end of summer and it's feeling a bit autumnal, but there's still things in flower and we deliberately have gone for that long season to help for pollinators. Um, a lot of the planting, I mean, it's, it's starting to fill out, but that, that will be encouraged. You know, it will be allowed to fill out and we know that that from the Plants for Bugs work really favours the sort of um, plant uh, dwelling invertebrate species. Um, that having that, that density of vegetation is, is important. That's our main mantra. I think, we, I think we said it in most episodes is plant more plants. Plant more, so yes, more is better, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. And also it's, um, we, we're not quite in an area where we can see them, but dotted around are some evergreens to again give a bit of wind, over winter yeah. cover. And we know that that is especially important for ground active invertebrates mm. as well. So, so those things, you know, have been although it's not shouting about it you know it's we are deliberately doing yeah. some of those things as we understand more about the impacts that our garden activities have you can sort of start doing things that are more on purpose so yeah. you might have been having this effect before but now yeah we sort of you know, know why you're doing, you know yeah. why you're doing i mean there could be it, happy yeah. accidents uh, that you, yeah. you discover you're doing something right yeah. uh, anyway but to actually know and do you know put your sort of garden management into place confidently knowing why you're doing it and, and there are decisions to be made you might do something one way if you want to benefit pollinators but do it slightly different way if you want to benefit spiders or something you know so so i think you know there there is a little bit of of leeway in it but it's yeah i mean we we not sure where it goes but we're always on the lookout for you know sort of what the next questions what the next opportunities Mm. and things that are important for gardeners you know to know um, about encouraging wildlife in gardens and particularly about plant choice well that was Um, a really good segue because my next question was going to (laughs) be are there any plans to build on the plants Ah. for bugs project because I know the findings um, which you've put out and that's actually when we first saw you was when you were giving the results at that wildlife gardening forum symposium Um, (laughs) but are there plans within, within the RHS to repeat and do maybe something in a different part of the country or is that probably not not repeat i think the intensity of that trial and the amount of uh, you know sort of work that goes into it um would be difficult to do again but i think you know there could be aspects of it that we'd look for opportunities for doing so we've got nothing specifically in the pipeline um that falls directly on but we're always sort of working particularly on the pollinator side of plants because that helps us develop that plants for pollinator list so for example we we did some work with blooms for bees um, which was a sort of coventry based project that's come to an end now work that's done with nick too you know in yeah, bristol yeah. so i think we're, we're probably horizon scanning a little bit but in a way our work isn't yet done for no. even just 
getting communicating the messages yes. from those oh, yeah. yes, um, there are some you know different messages there and getting that to spill through to garden designers to landscapers you know that so it's not just within gardens yeah. this has implications for sort of our urban green spaces as well so i think we, we're probably looking as much to to make the most of that as well agree, yeah. um but yeah if if you spot anything on your travels you know <laughs> you know where i am you can always put me in touch um something i'm really interested in at the moment and i've said this on a previous episode um of our podcast is just observing birds in particular because they're really obvious and really visible things Mm. to see in your garden but things that you didn't know they eat that you know in terms of plant seeds Mm. and we actually saw sparrows just it was quite funny because it was quite a windy day and this cock sparrow was just being blown around in the wind while balancing on the top of a cortaderia which I did not, and it was eating the seeds from it, and I just hadn't seen that before, and I thought, oh, that's an interesting thing. So things like that, we we often see things that aren't necessarily in books that you know, which is really interesting. I mean, the fact of the matter is, in gardens, we don't limit ourselves just to, you know, one or two. We, over the years, have bred ones, we've brought ones in from overseas, Um, you know we've looked at selections from our native ones and so if you were to open like the RHS plant finder, you know you've got 70 to 80,000 plants to choose from you know and that's not all the heritage ones that are you know not even listed currently so so we we love our plants to garners and so there's no way that all of those plants could have been studied in depth for yeah. all the different wildlife that they might have interactions with, you know, that those plant-animal relationships. There's so many unknowns. Um, mm. So, you know, we often fall back on the ones that are well documented. OK, so you're going to have red animal caterpillars or nettles. But, you know, what other plants could they potentially um, yeah. feed on? I mean, it might only be nettles or, you know, but what, the, the, there is such a huge... It's back to that yeah. big question mark over there's so many things we don't know. So I think so Ben saying, said before, <laughs> there just aren't enough entomologists in the world. No. <laughs> well, I, I think... Okay, I have a fondness for entomologists, but I think naturalists, let's get everybody becoming, you know, a sort of naturalist again who's just observing the nature around them. And then if they share what they're seeing, yeah, there can be some interesting new things that we didn't know. Definitely. Um, There's the famous study that um, Jennifer Owen did in a garden in Leicestershire, um, which found a lot of um, larval um, uh, plants for butterfly and moth caterpillars that that were never listed anywhere else. You the buddleia came yes. up as top, didn't it, yeah. for that one? Because we all, we all know how good a buddleia is in the summer when it's flowering for, exactly. for those things. But, yeah, I think I can't remember how many moth species the larval stage mm. it was really important for them. So, so yeah. I think don't feel guilty about trying different plants because we... You know, okay, it might not be on somebody's list, but you might be the first to spot something new using it. Um, So I'm a very all-inclusive wildlife gardener in that way. Um, Stay inquisitive. That's what we yeah. always say. I'm certain. I'm basically like a child. That's, that's how I describe <laughs> myself. I'm like, ooh, easily distracted. So some... distracted. Yes. In fact, we've done quite well. I know. Not to do Should we take a stroll? Shall we? Well, yes. We've been standing here for a while. Um, no, that's really interesting. Definitely. And yeah, like I say, this garden really is very beautiful. There's just lots and lots of things going on. Yeah. Like so, we're just passing here on our right yeah. some uh, little. 
uh, strips of native hedging Ooh. and they're done in a really funky way aren't they sort of yeah. interspersed with um, border plants and then some uh, cut through pathways and then sort of disposed on the other side we've got um, this whole massive you know sort of mad um, bed which has been sown with um, a mixture of native and non-native um, perennials and annuals and it's yeah. just coming I think this yellow flower is melilot it was melilot yes uh, the melilot you've That's got the, the melilot uh, yellow um, and white melilot in there yes as well. we've got and both and this is it's a bit of an overcast day today but we did have a lot of uh, honeybees yeah um on this they certainly love that and lots of bumblebees i think on things like see, the clovers I, I can see two honeybees braving this cold <laughs> august day i can see a um a carder bumblebee over there oh a good spot in a quick <laughs> look. i can it's see a bit it. of wild, wild <laughs> carrot in there i love that i um, am loving wild carrot this year as well i don't know if it's just a particularly good year for it but sometimes mm. you just notice things once you've got your eye in it's amazing what you then think oh I didn't realise there was a patch we've there we've got and... a really super patch um, it's in the orchard because we're right. I don't know as you walk through the garden today whether you really notice but there, there's some interesting changes you know so some longer grassed areas you know more wildflowers uh, in between the fruit trees rather than just getting mown within an inch of its life yeah um, more dead wood around physical yeah. dead wood so yeah we're uh, that's it like you say that sort of change in attitudes as well um and there is an aesthetic about it um Mm. about you know sort of that that plants plants can still be grown they're really beautiful but how we view their use you know it it is to some of it extent it's stylistic um so you can still go neat yeah you know probably that bumblebee's not going to worry if you're you know sort of cosmos is in straight lines or mixed in with you know lots of other plants in a messy way but so i i, I think there's room for for different styles but to, when we know certain aspects yeah. um of how we manage gardens is good for them such as allowing some long grass as well as short grass let's go for it let's yeah. let's show people that you can do both concludes part one of the interview and we're going to be showcasing the second half in the next episode in a yes. couple of weeks right in a fortnight we yeah, promise or a week even maybe <gasps> who knows but yeah i really thought it was interesting i mean everything that helen said was really fascinating but i thought it was really interesting to hear how the plants of pollinators lists were created and we'd originally thought that the list was sort of plucked out of thin air didn't we yeah kind of i thought they just I don't know, just did a an email around the RHS or something and said, what have you seen loads of bugs on? You know, what plants? And, you know, just sort of went by observation that way. But it turns out, as as Helen said, they went to the literature, the scientific literature, and to make that original list, um, which is great because then there's a sort of a, a scientific basis for it from the beginning. But then people like Nick Tew, who we interviewed on a previous episode as well, he's feeding into that list. So it's continually being refreshed, which is fantastic. So I, it's love, sort of a, I was going to say, I love the behind the scenes science that yeah, we're, we're getting from talking to these people. Yeah, it's great. Extreme so geekery. you can really have faith basically in that, in that plants for, for pollinators list. And the other thing 
that was we wanted to pick up. And it's something that I actually got wrong when we were talking about our natives versus non-natives debate. And that's, I'd kind of had the idea when they were, if you don't know, or haven't listened to the previous episode, the RHS did a bit of work where they compared natives, neonatives and exotic plants. And I thought in the native plots, they made little garden plots to compare them. I thought in the native plots, they picked plants from that plants from pollinators list, meaning that they knew the natives they were, for, were already good for wildlife. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but actually, it turns out that wasn't right. So they just took a sort of a random selection of native plants, and then again a random selection of neonatives, and yeah. so on. So it made it even more rigorous. Oh, it's, it's basically the creme de la creme of the of what is out there in terms of research about what uh, plants benefit insects the most, and yeah. that's why we're always plugging it. So yeah, it's great to talk to you about that. Yeah, great. So listen out in the next episode for part two of that interview and also if you want to help support the podcast the equipment that we needed to go out and do this interview um, costs a bit of money so we have a gofundme page called get the wildlife podcast some gear and if you'd like to make a donation then you can do so there links to that are in the show notes and we're actually going to be thanking anybody who's donated in the last couple of weeks in the next episode to the native plant of the week now and this week we are talking about Oreganum vulgari or vulgare vulgar or vulgar <laughs> also known as oregano which will be a surprise to some being considered generally as a mediterranean herb is actually a native wildflower of the uk and it's actually quite a widespread wildflower and i'm sure some of you probably will have seen it without even noticing actually when you're out and about for those who haven't seen it though, or have never grown it as a herb in the garden, I thought I'd give a, a really quick description of what it looks like. It's a herbaceous perennial, at least in the UK, and that means it grows up from the ground each year and then it dies back in the autumn and the winter. It grows up to about 60 centimetres tall, and that, that's its maximum generally. It's somewhere between 30 and 60 centimetres, and it's got these small hairy green leaves, and these leaves are held on hairy stems too. Uh, on opposite sides of the stem. Don't think I realised it was hairy. It's quite rough to the touch. Like, it, it, I mean, the leaves are tiny, but if you actually rub them, they're a bit rough, aren't they? That's right. They're small hairs, mm. but they are absolutely covered in them. And actually, it's those hairs that hold some of the oils, which give mm. it its flavour. When it flowers, which it does sometime between July and September, or, co- or that's sort of according to the books, actually, in some of the gardens we've got, it flowers right into October and a really good mild year. Ours has been going crazy for months and months and months, and I think it's still going to be going into October. It's still in full flush now, and this is, what, three weeks into September. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's doing really well this year. Um, And, yeah, when it does fly, it makes these sort of masses of small pink, sometimes white flowers that are held in crowded heads at the top of these stems, and they, the flowers actually open from buds which are sort of a darker purple red. So it's it's really nice when it's coming into bud and when it's open. Yeah, it's one of those things that has really tiny flowers, but they're on aggregate, just they make quite a big impact. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I'm spoiling it, but the insects love it as well. <laughs> yeah, because it's got so many thousands of flowers mm. on one individual mm. plant. Yeah, loads and loads of pollinators go go nuts for it. 
up close and personal, you would notice that these individual flowers are actually tiny little tubes and they've got lobed petals and the, the flowers themselves aren't exactly symmetrical. They're sort of symmetrical if you cut them down the middle, but not top to bottom. So the petals are, are not all the same shape. So let's go to the name. Origanum comes from the ancient Greek words that mean mountain. So that's oros and either brightness or beauty, which is ganos. And so it's sometimes referred to as brightness of the mountains or mountain joy, which is lovely, isn't it? That's very lovely, yes. Although it is chiefly known as a Mediterranean plant, it actually has a really vast distribution. It's got a southern extent in Algeria. It goes all the way east through Europe and north into Russia via Central Asia. And then it also goes southeast through the Middle East, through India and as far as China and is also now found naturalised in the east and west coast of the United States. And it's found naturalised there because it was introduced by Greek and Italian immigrants, really. And ultimate question, is it a problem there? Are we Not, not- too bad of a problem, okay. but it is spreading. Okay, um, It's not like some of the other things we've introduced. Like how parsley, we yeah, talked about that. Yeah, purple loose strife. That's yeah, another really yeah. bad one over there. So I don't think it's too much of a problem, but that's just from a, a really brief reading online. So yeah, I don't know. But it's the culinary varieties that they introduced over there. In the UK, it grows amongst dry grassland scrub and on hedge banks on infertile chalky soils. And that's mostly where we've seen it, isn't it? Grass, grassland type habitats. Yeah, mostly in the south of England. We saw a fair bit of it when we were on holiday down in Kent and Sussex earlier in the year. It's found throughout England and Wales and it is found in Scotland and in Ireland and Northern Ireland too, but it's less frequent there. And it's actually got a a limit at about 410 metres above sea level in the UK, although elsewhere in Europe and in Central Asia, like many of the plants, again, that we've talked about, that it can grow much higher up to something like 2,000 metres above sea level. Just because it's a lot warmer, I guess. Returning to the kitchen, it's worth clearing up some confusion about exactly what plant we're talking about. And we've said we've got oregano growing in our garden, but we're not 100% sure we've actually got oregano, or at least not this type of oregano, because the oreganum genus, the group of plants that can be called oregano, is actually quite broad and includes other plants like marjoram. They're also highly variable, aren't they? And a bit promiscuous. So there's lots of uh, crossing and things like that. Crossbreeding. Yeah, indeed. This is one of those facts. I know you're just going to go on and explain it, but I've read, I've had to look this up about three or four times and I still can't get it in my head, the the connection between all the different oreganos. Yeah, that's why we have notes. (laughs) Give away the game. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the native Oregonum vulgari, that's the one we're talking about today, is the same species as the one that we cook with. And it is the same as the Mediterranean herb. However, where it grows in the UK, it isn't as flavourful a herb. So people tend not to go out and collect this for the pot. And that's generally just because of there are slight variations in in the type of plant that you get here as opposed to Greece and, and Italy. But also it's just growing in a much warmer climate there. And it tends in those climates to produce more of the aromatic oils that gives it its flavour. But we also regularly cook with the closely related marjoram. And there is a wild marjoram, another native plant to the UK. And that is Oregonum marjorana. There's also, though, the pot marjoram, which is Oregonum onites. And then we have Oregonum syriacum, 
which is the key oregano in the Middle Eastern herb mix that's called za'atar. Mm. And I don't know if I pronounced that right for anybody who's listening and knows the correct pronunciation. We buy it in a pot though, because it's really, really delicious. And yeah. apparently za'atar, the name itself comes from the name for that actual type of, of oregano. So when you buy a pot of oregano from the shops, it's not actually clear which of these oregano species we're, we're getting. And it's one of the reasons why you might want to grow it yourself. Because if you want, for culinary reasons, to be sure you're getting one particular flavour over another and a recipe calls for one specific herb, probably the only way is to go to a specialist seller who, who is labelling things properly or just to grow it yourself. And we have indeed been growing oregano for generations and the herb used to be regarded by the ancient Greeks as a symbol of happiness. So wedding couples were crowned with it. And coming a bit closer to the modern day, Nicholas Culpepper, the 17th century herbalist, recommended it. You're considering 17th century modern. Yeah, <laughs> that's modern very, by that's my very, standards. Very typical of Ben. <laughs> love that. <laughs> uh, well, he recommended its dried and powdered leaves for a range of illnesses. And it was also made into herbal sachets and for making sweet smelling powders. And this was from the time when, well, we used to stink, really. <laughs> uh, used to? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just living the 17th century lifestyle. <laughs> I can vouch for that, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually been used to make a purple dye for wool as well. And when you make a juice from it by pounding it up, Apparently, it used to be rubbed into wood to make it sweet smelling. Lovely. Have a nice smelling table. Yeah, a winter project for us. I think so. With all that said, we want to get into the juicy stuff now, which is the sexual antics of the oregano. Oregano vulgari is hermaphroditic, probably, and I'm going to come back to this in a second, because its flowers contain both male and female parts. It has the male stamen, which is held protruding from the flower, and then the female carpal is held within the flower below. However, in some individual flowers, they are in effect female, because the stamen are much shorter and they are infertile. This is a bit confusing and we are actually just going to have to give a call out to any real botanists out there to tell us the answer to this. Because what we're not sure of is when we talk about a plant being hermaphroditic, whether it's the, the physical structures that are there or whether it's the effective sex. So to describe the difference, in oregano, it is hermaphroditic in the sense that in even in these functionally female flowers there are both male and female parts but it has the function of being a female flower so it could be hermaphroditic if you're just taking it by the structures that are actually there or it could be a different um, structure and this we would call gynomonoecious and a gynomonoecious plant is where you have one single plant where some of the flowers are hermaphroditic and some of the flowers are female only. If botanists are thinking about this and they're deciding what to call it by how it's functioning, how those flowers are functioning, then actually it's something we would call uh, a gynomonoecious plant. I also want to point out that as well as this being very interesting from a botanical perspective, if any of you are bananagrams or scrabble players, 
botany and these very long words that we keep introducing are fantastic for those games <laughs> that's right <laughs> so we're just trying to help you out in that as well even if the botany know, doesn't go in your head i don't know if gyno monoecious would even fit on a scrabble board would it maybe not diagonally uh, so, i think that's, oh, that one's bananagrams only oh yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah no nice. but no it is really it's fascinating and very very complicated and i think even if you don't remember these details, just knowing about this huge complexity can just make you very much more appreciate the natural world. Yeah, because there is every possible combination of these structures in a flower somewhere in the natural world. And we actually have a link to an article, which we'll put into the show notes, an open access journal article, which is talking about how these structures evolve. And it's got a fantastic diagram, really simple diagram on the first page, which has all these different terms explained and how they all interrelate, you know, sort of because you've got gynomonoecious, but then gynodioecious. And, Don't confuse them yeah, yeah, I won't say anymore. Too but, many, too but many it's a really, words. really good one to look up, a great paper, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it'll help explain a lot of what we're talking about. I also finally want to give a quick shout out uh, about the sexual Atlantics bit of oregano to a website called wildflowerfinder.org.uk and... Oregano was actually quite hard to find information on regarding this. And uh, wildflowerfinder.org.uk just happens to sort of, it seems like the personal website of some botanist out there, um, a guy called R.W. Darlington. Um, it's being updated all the time. But on this website, this this botanist has gone out and taken photos of thousands and thousands of species uh, and put descriptions of, of the details that you can see uh, along with the photos. So it's a fantastic resource and I really recommend looking it up. There goes winter again. Yeah. <laughs> nice smelling furniture and knowing much more in detail about the sexual antics of wildflowers. Perfect. What more could you ask for? Nothing. <laughs> Once the flowers are pollinated, they produce a nutlet, which is a tiny, tiny, shiny little nut. And those nuts then fall as the plant dies down in autumn and winter and they'll, it'll shed all the seeds or these nutlets and they'll grow up the following year into new plants. Yeah, and I read that it is very, very good at reproducing from its seed. I think there's about a 90% success rate in and some it, studies, not not every time, obviously. but Yes, and it's why it's a really easy one to grow from seed at home too, which we'll go on to in just a minute. Before we do that, though, let's talk about the wildlife. And oregano is so fantastically loved by loads of different pollinating insects that it's actually been included in the RHS plants for pollinators list that we talked about earlier. So the leaves and the stems themselves are eaten by uh, a whole host of species, including the caterpillar of the lace border moth and a rare beetle called Longitarsus obliteratus, which I think is a fantastic name. Yeah, well, that sounds fascinating, but it's so rare that it doesn't even have a, a common name. Yeah, and a very oh, restricted a distribution name. as okay. well. The flowers are visited by loads and loads of butterflies, um, things like the comma, the gatekeeper, the small tortoiseshell too, as well as the white and buff-tailed bumblebees and the bronze furrow bee as well, which was a new type of bee to me. Mm, yeah, I've not heard of that one either. Finally, one thing that we've noticed when we're out and about gardening, you do have to cut this plant back every year um, to encourage fresh growth and to get rid of all the old twiggy stems. But when you do cut it back, you notice there are loads and loads of invertebrates actually hiding away in amongst that twiggy dead foliage. Lots of different types of species of uh, wood lice, but also loads of spiders. We found earwigs in there. Just lots loads of, of things. Yeah. Lots of unidentified things as well. Shield bugs we've seen quite yeah, a few yeah. of. 
centipedes as well hide in there so so just the structure of the plant itself because it's got all those little nooks and crannies is is brilliant for wildlife too if you want to grow it at home there are two main reasons why you would do so one is for an ornamental plant that is also good for wildlife but the second reason of course is for its culinary use to be growing it as a herb and we're going to give you some advice on cultivars and and the situations in which it would grow well but before you decide to have one it's worth thinking about what you want it for because there are specific varieties that are good for the pot and good for cooking and others that are just good as a garden or a border plant so definitely decide which of those you want that plant for or of course both if you're lucky enough to have space if you want the true wildflower then you can go to lots of different wildflower seed suppliers and if you want a cultivated form uh, for a herb then there's quite a few that you can buy in packet form as a seed if you want one of the more highly cultivated ornamental varieties then it's probably the sort of thing it's better to actually go out and buy as an adult plant if you are going to go the seed route sow between february and may in a small pot filled with seed compost it prefers a proper seed compost rather than a multi-purpose when you're first getting the seeds going because it's much lower in nutrition which is better for the for the plants in their really early days sow the seeds onto the top of this compost and cover with a light layer of sieved compost water and then place in a propagator to germinate and this wants to be in a fairly warm position so you could put it on a heated mat or you could just put it on a windowsill so again if you just have a couple of small pots three inch pots then you could just sow a sprinkling of seed on the top and that's easy enough to fit into a a windowsill somewhere in your house when seedlings are big enough to prick out, then you can take them out of their individual pots and pot them on into either modules or into, like I say, into individual pots. And you can just then grow them on until they're a large enough size to plant out. Once you do have a large enough plant or you've gone and bought one, they are definitely best placed in a sunny position on a free draining soil, which is the conditions they like to grow out in nature. Now, I want to caveat this slightly because we do have them growing on garden soils, some of the gardens that we look after, that are on more of a heavy loam or actually on a clay soil. But although it's clay, it's not, it doesn't get really sopping wet over the winter, does it, where, no, where no. we've got them on clay? So if you do have a really, really wet soil over the part of the year, then it's probably better to grow it in a pot or in a raised planter. And for pot growing... I'll take a multi-purpose compost and add, what do you reckon, about 25 or 50% grit? Yeah, definitely. Just wants to be really free draining and yeah, it'll get its roots down into that nicely. Yeah, perfect. And they uh, that's just sort of good advice for any of the Mediterranean herbs, things like lavender and rosemary as well. Really good to add a bit of extra drainage to the pots that you're growing them in. Now in pots, you will need to water them. Uh, anything in a pot needs watering no matter where it comes from in the world but in the ground because they do come from fairly dry places you do need to water it for the first year but once it's established they're they're pretty self-sustaining really and we almost never water oreganos in the ground do we no even in last year's beautiful summer do you remember that yeah (laughs) not like this year distantly but yeah distantly no they're really resilient plants yeah, yeah designed good one for a dry garden obviously down to their hairy leaves which makes them very well adapted to drought yeah very true now plants will die back in the autumn once they finish flowering and once all the leaves have dropped you want to cut them back you can do this in the winter uh, but again 
we found so many different invertebrates hiding away. There's no harm in just leaving that cut back until late winter, early spring, when you first start to see growth you know, coming and then, and then give it a really hard cut and you want to cut it all the way down to the ground. And the reason you do this is because it will grow if you don't cut it, but it just ends up over the years making this twiggy mass of dead stems mm. underneath. And it does actually look quite unsightly if you if you don't cut it back. Do you give the, uh, the stuff that you're pruning out a good old shake as well, just to get rid of any living things that are hiding away in there? Yeah, or just chuck it on the compost bin and then Even they'll better. crawl off from there. Yep. Yep. Now, finally, as to the varieties, just a quick list. If you want an ornamental one exclusively, and it makes a fantastic border plant, it's really, really wonderful uh, just to grow for, for its ornamental qualities. Varieties to look out for include Kent Beauty, which is a lovely one. We've grown that before. Orium Crispum, which is one with a sort of a yellow and golden leaf. And this is the one I'm not sure whether we've got a golden marjoram or a golden oregano. That's the mm. one I'm not sure we've got. Yeah. We've Either did- way, the, the colour of the leaf is really beautiful. And yeah. especially in the sunny position, you you get the flowers, obviously, in the summer. But before that, you get bright plant. Yeah. Happy looking. It is happy. Cheery. <laughs> yeah. And then we've also got Rosen Couple as the final one, which has purple tinged leaves. And that's actually one of the hardiest cultivars of all that you can grow in the UK. All the rest are hardy. But this one is particularly good if you've got a very frost-prone garden or you're in one of the colder parts of the country. On to the culinary varieties. You can grow Oregon and Vulgari subspecies Hertum Greek. And again, you don't need to take notes on all this because links to everything will be in the show notes. And that is one of the plants that is more similar to the type that they grow down in the Mediterranean as the, as the culinary herb. It's got a really nice, strong flavour. And then there's also hot and spicy, which has more of a slightly spicy, peppery, robust flavour to it. Brill, happy growing, everyone. that pretty much wraps up today's show but before we do go just a small reminder of our book club uh, book which we'll be talking about in two episodes time and that is by professor jeff ollerton and it's called pollinators and pollination and we've already started reading this one i'm actually prepared and it is really good i'm just so i'm gonna say because i don't want to <laughs> give any more spoilers yeah it's, go and get yourself a copy and read it alongside us it's a scientific book with lots of up-to-date information and research, but it's really easy to read. It's it very accessible. Yes, yeah. don't be, yeah, don't be put off by the, the sciencey nature of it. No, yeah, <laughs> definitely one to go and get. Did you say that's from Pelagic? Pelagic Publishing. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the only place you can go and buy it. So we'll put a link to that into the show notes. Yep. Excellent. If you want to get in touch, please do. We. If you have been in touch, actually, in the last couple of weeks, we'll get back to you soon. Now we're back on holiday. Um, so you can find us on facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast. On Twitter, we are twitter.com forward slash the wild GDN. And again, you can follow links to our YouTube channel. If you would like to donate to the podcast, follow the links to our GoFundMe page. And with that said, I think all that's left to say is keep gardening and see you next time. Bye. Bye.